Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 4th edition of WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Bob Nichols, Senior Trial Attorney with Floyd, Scarrett, and Kelly. Caution, you are about to enter the workers' compensation zone. Let's get started with this week's litigation news. Amendments to the Labor Code that took effect in 2004 require that benefits for life pensions or total disability awards be adjusted for a cost of living adjustment or COLA. There has been industry uncertainty about how this new law works. The biggest problem is when you should start calculating the COLA for a life pension or a total disability award. There are three possible COLA commencement dates. You might start the calculation on the date of injury, or the permanent stationary date, or even later when the first life pension payment begins. Obviously, employers would prefer a later date and claimants the earliest possible date. Now, the Court of Appeal, in the case of John Duncan versus the WCAB, attempted to clarify this new law. The petitioner was John Duncan, the administrator of the subsequent Injuries Benefit Trust Fund. He claimed that annual weekly increases in benefits should begin only after an injured employee is entitled to such benefits. The WCAB, after reconsideration of this case, disagreed with Mr. Duncan and held that the COLA starts on January 1st after the date of injury. The Court of Appeal disagreed with both arguments and held that the COLA must start on January 1st, 2004, and every January 1st thereafter, no matter what the date of injury. This case is the worst of all possible outcomes on this issue for California employers and best for claimants. The COLA compounds annually. For, for very young injured workers, the cost of life pensions and total disability awards have now increased dramatically. This will also affect the cost of death benefit claims. This case will probably be taken to the Supreme Court, and other COLA cases are working their way through other courts of appeal districts. Hence, this may not be the final word on how COLAs are to be calculated. Now, the WCAB issued an end bank decision in Jesus Cervantes versus El Aquila Food Products that clarifies the spinal surgery second opinion process. This is very important. Defendants now must conduct UR whenever an injured employee's treating physician recommends spinal surgery. If a treating physician seeks authorization for spinal th surgery through a narrative report, the narrative report must clearly state at the top that authorization for spinal surgery is being requested. If UR approves the spinal surgery request, or if the employer fails to timely complete UR, the employer must authorize the surgery. If UR denies the request, then the dispute can be resolved under the SSSOP process. Now, a defendant must both complete its UR, and if there is a UR denial, file the SSSOP objection within 10 days, 10 days of its receipt of the treating physician's report recommending spinal surgery. The spinal surgery cases only, the UR determination always must be made within 10 days of receipt of the treating physician's report. The WCAB expressly disapproved of the 2006 Brasher versus Nationwide Studio Fund case that allowed a de defendant to opt out of the UR and instead request the SSSOP procedure. 
By the way, Wanda Ogilvie filed her appeal to the WCAB NBank decision, which specified the manner in which the DFEC adjustment table in the PDRS can be rebutted. This appeal is shaping up to be a very high-profile case, obviously, as numerous organizations file amicus briefs for the court to consider. The California Workers' Compensation Institute, as well as the California Chamber of Commerce, have appeared as amicus in support of the employer, the city and county of San Francisco. The American Insurance Association has notified the court they have joined with the CWCI. On December 1st, employers' direct insurance company also filed a request to file an amicus brief. Now, the parties have until December 22nd to respond to the amicus briefs. The California Applicants Attorney Association typically appears in these cases, but they have not yet filed any documents. No date has been set for oral argument. The CMS Network lien reps are facing WCAB sanctions for alleged frivolous litigation. Frivolous. Keep that in mind. The WCAB has removed seven of their cases to itself and assigned the matter to a panel of three members of the WCAB. It will decide if CMS Network Inc. and or its hearing representatives Dominic Arguello or Randall Holian should be sanctioned for repeated misstatements of the law. In these seven consolidated cases, Mr. Arguello and Mr. Holian represent surgery center lien claimants. The WCAB pointed out in their order that lien claimants have a burden of proof, not the employer. The placement of this burden was clarified in the NBank decision of Coons versus Patterson for coverings and in the more recent decision of Tapia versus Skillmaster Staffing. It was emphasized in the Tapia case that billing by itself does not establish that the claim fee of a medical provider was reasonable. Thus, even in the absence of any evidence from a defendant, an outpatient surgery center's billing is not by itself necessarily sufficient to establish reasonableness. Nonetheless, in each of these seven cases, either Mr. Holian or Mr. Arguello assert that reconsideration should be granted because the defendants failed to meet their evidentiary burden of proving that the lien charges were unreasonable. Because of this assertion, the WCAB issued a notice of intent to award sanctions for bad faith actions or tactics that are frivolous or solely intended to cause unnecessary delay. The notice indicates that the intent to impose sanctions a separate $500 sanction on CMS and on each hearing rep in each case, or a total of $3,500 on CMS and $500 on Mr. Holian, who filed one case, and $3,000 on Mr. Aguayo, who filed six of them. Now, if they object within 15 days, a trial will be held before the three assigned commissioners in San Francisco. It's very important. Now, let's go to some other news. The California Department of Insurance says it is inappropriate for insurance companies to have investments in companies that support Iran terrorist activities. Six months ago, they launched a probe to determine the extent of these investments. Carriers that replied to the probe admitted to having $12 billion invested in companies related to Iran terrorist financing. 
A more comprehensive list of the targeted companies is being prepared, and when completed, it will be sent out to California insurance companies seeking more information. Insurance companies will be given 30 days to notify CDI in writing that they will comply with the request to divest ownership in these companies. Insurers will then be given 90 days to eliminate those holdings from their portfolios. CDI will make a public list of companies that do not voluntarily agree to divest. Commissioner Poisoner will also subpoena high-ranking executives of these insurance companies to testify under oath. He will ask them why they believe it is in the interest of California policyholders for their premium dollars to be invested in companies propping up Iran's energy, nuclear, defense, and banking sectors. Now, 16 companies did not respond for the initial request for information. The Department of Insurance will subpoena a representative sample of 10 of non-responders to explain why they ignored the request. That hearing will be held on January 12th in Los Angeles. Florida quickly joined with California in demanding that insurers in Florida drop Iran investments. Kevin McCarthy, who is the Florida Insurance Commissioner and Secretary Treasurer of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, is establishing a policy in Florida similar to the one announced by California Insurance Commissioner Steve Poisner. Now let's turn to our fraud report, always a favorite. Maggie Gomez, a Daly City Councilwoman, pled not guilty this week to 12 counts of insurance and workers' compensation fraud. She has been released on $100,000 bail. Prosecutors say Gomez claimed she could not stand for certain periods of time or walk long distances because of her 2005 knee injury. How many times have you seen that in your career? But investigators spotted Gomez doing many of the activities she said she couldn't do, including exercising and climbing into her boyfriend's truck. She faces five counts of insurance fraud seven counts of workers' comp fraud, and two charges of attempted perjury. The perjury of charges stem from statements Gomez made during a deposition. Now, you notice it was attempted perjury because it appears she did not sign the deposition, but it is still attempted perjury. Investigators received an anonymous letter accusing the councilwoman of misconduct. Her attorney said the investigation into his client has been encouraged by enemies trying to smear her. Gomez has been on the council for eight years and is up for re-election in 2010. Her next court appearance is January 27th. In other news, Kenya Atlas Hearn, a San Bernardino bus driver, was charged with three counts of workers' compensation fraud and two counts of presenting a false claim. She claimed an incident with an irate bus passenger caused headaches and psychiatric stress. Again, how many times have you heard that? During her criminal jury trial, a recording from the camera mounted in her bus was played. The footage completely contradicted her claim, and she was convicted by the jury. She is scheduled to be sentenced December 14th. She faces up to nine years in state prison and a fine. Now, in other news, finding ways to reduce medical costs seems to be a hot topic at both the state and federal level. The federal government will soon be dispensing $10 billion 
in incentives for the health industry to roll out electronic health record systems. Now, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act will provide incentive payments for, of up to $64,000 for each physician who deploys an electronic health records system and uses it effectively. However, high technology may not help produce or reduce medical costs as expected. A new Harvard Medical School study looked at some of the nation's most technologically advanced hospital facilities. The study evaluated data on 4,000 hospitals in the U.S. over a four-year period. Researchers found that computerization of those facilities has not saved any money or improved administrative efficiency. It also found that the immense cost of installing and running hospital IT systems is greater than any expected cost saving. They claim that much of the software being written for use in clinics is aimed at administrators, not doctors, nurses, and lab workers. Now, speakers at the National Workers' Compensation and Disability Conference at Expo shared their strategies for overcoming claims challenges in this daunting economic climate. Recessions are associated with downward pressure on claims frequency, but in the continued recession, that pent-up claims frequency may appear. Carla Sorelli, when the Workers' Comp Program Director for Aramark, prefers a back-to-basics approach during these difficult times. Wynn sought ways to benchmark Aramark's comp costs against other companies and discovered that it wasn't pursuing subrogation actively. Now the company has found savings by carefully reviewing all contracts to remove the waiver of subrogation and ensure that the indemnification causes are, causes are in its favor. Jill Dulich, Senior Director of Marriott Claim Services, said investigating incidents has helped Marriott reduce injuries. Her company tracks accidents by time of day, day of the week, and places accidents into two categories, behavioral and environmental issues, both of which can be topics for improvement. Now, some risk managers and claims experts are blaming Medicare rules for increasing comp costs, and there probably may be some way to that. Set-asides are required in cases where workers' comp claimants are eligible for Medicare, nearing retirement age, or qualify for a Social Security Disability Program. The set-asides have been recognized since 1995 as a preferred method for considering Medicare's interest in workers' comp settlements. That typically requires allocating a portion of a workers' comp claim settlement into a trust fund for the injured employee's future medical care. But Medicare, during the past year, has issued new guidelines on, on the set-asides, and they have stepped up efforts to increase funding for future medical liabilities. Regional offices of CMS review and approve set-asides arrangements on a case-by-case -case basis. However, recent studies show that claim settlement delays and government practices for evaluating workers' comp claims require a Medicare set-aside are boosting costs for those claims by as much as 20%. Now that's all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports 
by using your iPhone or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes store. Again, I'm Bob Nichols, Senior Trial Attorney with Floyd, Skerrin & Kelly, and thanks for joining us, and please visit us again next week for more news. Thank you, and goodbye.